0: Brian and I met studying abroad in Holland, and that was one of the first times we truly started to think about the role of religion in our lives. We were at a small school, sort of like a liberal arts college in the US, and were surrounded by students from all over the world. It's easy to forget
1: how big our world is, or even how big our own country is. Actually, if this past week has taught us anything, it's that sometimes we can live in a bubble, without context on what else is going on in communities other than our own. Often, it's not until we leave the environment we've lived in our whole lives that we truly get a taste of the bigger picture.
0: One thing that stands out in Holland was the Sinterklaas celebration, where every year at the beginning of December, Sinterklaas came to Dutch towns bearing gifts, joined by helpers called Svarte Piet. It closely parallels Santa Claus and his elves, except for one major difference.
1: You know it's Christmas in Amsterdam when Santa sails to town, flanked by all his little helpers. Nothing out of the ordinary, but take a closer look and you'll notice all the little helpers have their faces painted black, wear frizzy afro wigs, and have big red lip.
2: Most of us would call it blackface, but in the Netherlands, they just call it Christmas.
1: If you talk to a Dutch person who supports the tradition, they'll insist Duarte Piet's blackface and exaggerated features are not racist, and they'll insist that he's a cultural tradition, not a sign of oppression.
0: Surprisingly though, over two-thirds of the Netherlands say they have no religious affiliation, yet almost all of the country celebrates the arrival of Sinterklaas. Despite his name, history, and Christian attire, he's not thought of as a Christian figure in Holland, but rather a national and cultural one.
1: This certainly doesn't excuse the racism involved, but it did help give us context for how on earth this tradition still continues in Holland.
0: So upon returning to the United States, I immediately saw a connection between keeping this tradition and some of the arguments that come up every Christmas here in America. I always thought it was silly that red Starbucks cups saying Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas made national headlines. But our experiences with Pete abroad showed how much passion people could have about the traditions and religion they grew up with. I think it often takes exposure to a new set of experiences to understand our own lives better. In this episode, we're telling stories of how international experiences can help us better understand our own faiths, one from Qatar and one from India. I'm Max Barnes.
1: And I'm Brian Benton. You're listening to Revolves Around Me, a podcast about the intercept of two things that think they're the center of the universe, religion and millennials.
0: Part one of this episode starts in Punjab, a state in northern India that is the heart of India's Sikh community and ends in a dorm room at UC Santa Barbara.
3: So I grew up in a small state called Punjab in northern India, Um, and I moved to America when I was 12 years old.
1: This is Suman. She's 23 now and lives in Southern California. When her family came to America 10 years ago, it was to Valencia. Suman entered a public middle school in America, but in India she had gone to a religious private Sikh school.
3: So I went to um, a private school in India, and... It was, it went from kindergarten to 12th grade, like just in one school. And it was a religious school. Like it was named after one of our religious gurus. So we had morning assemblies, which lasted about an hour and we all had to pray. And I used to be actually on the little, on the little team that had to like conduct the prayers, even though I was like in fifth grade. So I used to do the prayers on the mic for the whole school in the morning
1: And the list goes on. Boys wore white collared shirts with ties and long pants in the winter and shorts in the summer. Girls wore long skirts that went past their knees until middle school. And then the uniform switched to salwar Kami's, which are baggy pants and long shirts that are worn by Sikh women, but also other groups in the Indian subcontinent. They
3: would check if our hair wasn't cut or if our nails weren't grown longer than they were supposed to or if they were painted or not.
1: So, Subin's family wanted her to attend the school, though, not because of the religious affiliation necessarily, but instead because the quality of education that she would receive there. So, why did your family decide that would be the school that you went to?
3: Those tend to be better than the public schools. Like, even, I mean, that's kind of the idea here, too, in a way. But yeah, like, I, we had to pay more. And so, it was just one of the really good schools in the area and just happened to be like a Sikh school.
1: And there are a few things that come up here. First, this certainly had an impact on Suman, especially because she says her family was religious but not necessarily devout. Her parents had her attend the school because it was the best school in the area, not because of the religious connection. But now, because of the prayers she said every morning and how important the Sikh culture was in the school, Sikhism is ingrained in Suman's head.
3: Even now, I remember a lot of those things, and I remember the scripture. Like, when I go to church here now, I can sing along a lot of the religious songs and stuff because I think they're just so ingrained in my memory from just going to that school.
1: Sikhs make up about 0.32% of the world's population. There's 23 million of them in the world. And even in India, where 90% of the world's Sikhs live, they're less than 2% of the national population. In the United States, there's about 250,000 Sikhs, which is about the population of Gilbert, Arizona. And if you haven't heard of Gilbert, Arizona, you're not alone. So imagine how a 12-year-old Sikh girl from Punjab feels when she moves halfway across the world to California and enrolls in a predominantly white middle school.
3: Like, I was just like, oh my god, I come from this small state, like, that no one knows about really. So I was like, oh, no one's ever, gonna, like, no one would ever even sort of understand what that was like.
1: When you moved to America, why did you move? Was it just your parents wanted you to, or did you want to?
3: My whole family came here when when I was 12, and then um, my parents actually did want to just, like, move here and they had stable jobs back home so after like six months they were like oh we should just go back but i was like because i had already started school here and i didn't want to keep going back and forth so i was like i'd rather just do high school here and like not have to move here when i'm in college um so i stayed here with my uncle and aunt while my parents went back after six months
1: so when i think back to my own experience in middle school or even high school i remember kids moving to my community, but I can't tell you where a single one of them came from. I don't think it's expected that a 12 year old is able to comprehend identity and place the same way older people or adults might. It was what can only be described as a totally and completely different environment for her. So for Suman, she kind of put her childhood behind her because people weren't asking about it. In 2012 though, she went to UC Santa Barbara and was assigned a freshman year roommate. Like everyone else, And sometime during that first semester, she had a breakthrough.
3: I think she came across like a picture where I had to, I was wearing that like long skirt and like braided hair and stuff. And it was, she's from San Francisco. So she went to a Catholic school there and she said that they do have uniforms. And then I would be like, oh my God, no, that wasn't the only thing. We also couldn't cut our nails and like, and we had to like pray every morning. And she was like, no, like we had to do all of those things.
1: This might seem like a small moment, But it was at this point that Suman realized her experience was different but not unique. And in a way, that's what most people are looking for when they try to come to terms with their own background and experiences.
3: Like, after you get to know people a little bit more and like talk about these things, there's definitely more similarities than differences.
1: Do you think that your experiences at at the school would be like farther back in your mind and you wouldn't think about it as much as maybe you do now and knowing that? it was less unusual than you originally thought?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't really meet people that I get to like talk to these things about um, unless people like ask me about my experience in India or something or what kind of school I went to. So it doesn't even come up in conversations.
1: Max and I actually studied abroad with Suman. And like us, she said the experience with so many international students was one of the first times she got to share stories about her childhood that she hadn't felt comfortable sharing before. And honestly, I didn't know a lot of this about Suman before we started talking. I'm glad I asked, though, because I think that understanding Suman's own background and seeing the ways that she was able to connect it with people in America helped me understand the place that my own upbringing fits in the bigger context as well.
0: So part two of our episode happens just across the Arabian Sea in Qatar. And it starts in 2010, when Jordan is just 19 years old. She decides to go take a year off from school.
2: So I ended up going to the Middle East um, in Qatar to go live with some family um, who happens to be living there, um, working for the Cornell campus that is over there.
0: Jordan ends up working for about a half a year at a hospital.
2: Long story short, I ended up um, meeting an obstetrician who works for the hospital, and he also works at a satellite hospital 45 minutes away in a town called Al-Wakra, and he offered me a position to work in the labor and delivery ward in um, Al-Wakra Hospital.
0: We could probably fill a full episode with stories from working in the trauma unit at a hospital in Al-Wakra, Qatar, but since this is a story about religion, we should mention that Jordan is not a Muslim. She's Mormon. To give a bit of context, in Qatar, Jordan lived with her cousins who are affiliated with the Cornell Medical School and are also Mormon, probably even more tied into the faith than Jordan was when she first arrived.
2: So my extended family, so the family beyond my immediate parents and my immediate family, they uh, are very devout Mormons.
0: In any country with expats, whether it be the Middle East, Asia, South America, anywhere really, groups of people with what we'll call atypical religions for that region tend to gravitate towards each other. There are Facebook groups, web forums, and just generally a word of mouth that helps people connect. In Qatar, there are an estimated 200 Mormons at any given point.
2: There's a Filipino ward. There's so many Mormon Filipinos that they actually have their own ward, and it's um, leadership speaks in Tagalog. And then there's a second ward that's for basically everyone else.
0: This group, somewhere around 100 people, all come together for services on Saturdays. Weekends are Friday and Saturday, so the Mormon group adjusts from their usual Sunday services.
2: And the church had rented out a villa um, really close to a bunch of embassies, including the U.S. Embassy. The Mormon church was uh, not officially recognized, so we were actually meeting in secret in this villa. And we had a landlord who was supposed to keep it quiet um, that we were meeting there. But then the neighbors, I guess, started to notice that there were, you know, hundreds of people coming to this one building.
0: Religious freedom in Qatar is complicated because while there's not a lot of government restriction and the constitution provides for freedom of association, public assembly and worship, there's a very strict ban on proselytizing or attempting to convert anyone from one belief to another.
2: The very next weekend while we were in our um, sacrament meeting, we had people barricade us in to the building They were Ministry of Interior Officials. They basically said, like, everyone needs to exit the building and go home except for the church leadership. Um, And that included my cousin.
0: And it's easy to think here, okay, we've been told to stop. We'll break up this church and no longer congregate. However, the Mormon group was not violating any laws.
2: One of the apostles of the church, so that's, like, one of the really big guys in the church, really high up, he found out what was happening, and he ended up pleading the Ministry of Interior to give us um, recognition, or at least let us just practice in peace, and assuring them that we wouldn't uh, proselytize.
0: For Jordan, though, this experience was about more than just how Mormonism would fit into her life in Qatar. It was about the role of religion in her life as a whole. Remember, she hadn't practiced at all during high school, and in Qatar, a large part of her return to it was because of the family she was staying with.
2: No, there were definitely times where I felt like my affiliation with the church was not worth the trouble that we were facing, like during the time when things kind of all fell apart for the church and we had to go to the meetings in secret. I was definitely faced with the idea that, like, why am I doing this, you know? Why am I a member of this church? Like, I should I should probably distance myself.
0: When asked about what role Mormonism fit into her time there, her first reaction was that it gave her a sense of community in a different country.
2: I felt like the church was there for me when I really needed it.
0: Then, after a bit more thought, she said this.
2: Um, But now I'm home, and within the context of who I am, the way that it fits into my life now currently um, is more peripheral.
1: Sometimes, eye-opening religious experiences come from where you least expect them. There's a power that comes from experiencing another culture, leaving a sense of community, or being an outsider. We're often quick to jump to assumptions about other cultures because we're just looking at them through our own perspectives. If these two stories and Max and my experience in the Netherlands show us anything, it's that we just need to talk to each other. None of us are really that different after all.
0: Revolves Around Me is produced by me, Max Barnes, in San Francisco, California.
1: And me, Brian Benton, in Brooklyn, New York. Our website is revolvesaround.me, and you can email us at revolvespodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe.
0: We'd love to hear your experiences abroad. Send us an email, Facebook message, or tweet at us. We're at revolvespodcast. We'll see you in two weeks.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Things
3: are spinning around me. And all my thoughts were cloudy And I had begun to doubt all the things that were me Been in so many places You know I've run so many races I Looked into the empty faces of the people of the night and something is just not right Cause I know that I gotta give